church. How we doing? Good, 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 good. It's good to be back home. Uh, I guess some of you guys know that last week I was in Denver uh, speaking at a church there. Now, Stan said I went up there to consult. Let me tell you the story. In fact, I want to say thank, uh, thank God that you love my brother Stan. Uh, Stan's amazing. He does a great job. He loves y'all. He looks forward to coming, and he sends his best. He says he's praying for you. Uh, I was kind of caught today. I uh, listened to, to Mark play the guitar. Uh, I grew up with a guitar player. You know who that was? Stan. And so I love guitar, and I love that cl- classical sound. So that was awesome. And John, uh, John Weinbrenner singing. Didn't John do a great job this morning singing that great song? Uh, John. I will take credit for John. He was in my youth choir back in the day, so I'm going to take credit for it. But we were in Denver last week, and uh, I was back at a church that I'd helped. Uh, when the pastor came there, he asked me to come and help him kind of get things going, and, and we were there. I hadn't been there in two years, and was there and just was overwhelmed about what God was doing in that church. And, and get this, y'all, we had 19 people trust Christ last weekend in Denver, which was incredible. To, to see that kind of response as people responded to the Lord. And I was preaching out of Joshua chapter three. How in the world do you get saved out of Joshua? But just that's the spirit of God moving and it just, but it's really good back. Do you know you're my favorite people to preach to? You, you are. I love aggravating y'all than anybody I know. And I'm glad to be back and looking forward to what God is going to do in and for and through us in this morning and in this day, this day is going to be an exciting day. For tonight, we're launching First Serve. I want everyone to know that you have to find a place of ministry. And it, that may be praying. That's a ministry. Did you know that? Some of y'all say, well, I'm too old to do anything. No, you're not too old to pray. And to be part of our prayer team, be part of the prayer movement, be a part of the family here, be part of the team. We use the word member around here, right? Why do we do that? Because we're a country club. No, we're not. We're a body. And if a body, and membership, member is a biblical word. It's not a worldly word. It's a biblical word. It means that every one of us is important. You cut off your finger, and you tell me if it ain't important. You just pull off a nail too soon. You tell me that ain't important. Stub your toe. Bite your lip. Whatever that we're all part of the family and we're all members of the body. So all of us have to find our place in membership in order to be a fully service. We do not want the body of Christ in Wimberley to be handicapped because we have members who are not functioning. Can I get an amen? So tonight at five o'clock, and we're going to feed you afterwards, okay? So if we can't get you with teaching, we'll get you with groceries. So you, you look forward to that tonight. It's, it's 5 o'clock. We're going to have a great time, a lot of fun. You're going to see things you never thought you'd see and hear things that I've been working on that I'm so excited about teaching. So it's going to be a great, great day. There's so many other things that are on my mind, but the biggest thing on my mind is i got a little something to talk to you all about. Back about three years ago, Tara and I, I did this. I did back-to-back trips to Africa. I went to Rwanda and spent 10 days in Rwanda, or as they call it, Rwanda, looking at what God is doing in that country. In the last 10 years, a single local church partnering with the nation of Rwanda has lifted a million people out of poverty, has gotten AIDS down to where there's more AIDS cases in the the state of Maryland than there is in the African nation of Rwanda. 
That spiritual emptiness has transformed and the churches there have become a vital part of the solution. Pastors dropped their denominational labels, united their Christ-centered hearts, and have changed the country because a single local church in the United States said, we are going to take Rwanda. One church became the hope of the world. And I was there watching that and going, oh my gracious. And this is what I prayed, Lord, I, I want to lead a church like that. I want, to be a, I want to be a part of a church who says no matter the size or the task or the challenge or the lack of resources, we will literally storm the gates of hell with water pistols. And he sent me to you. Oh, no. Oh, yeah. All for Jesus. I got back from that trip to Rwanda. My heart was just big. Spent five days home, put terror on the plane and flew back to Malawi and then spent six days in Malawi. Tara had spring break. Dear friends of ours were running an orphanage there. They're still dear friends of ours. The orphanage is still there. Got into a conversation with them that you could feed an African child for a month for 10 bucks. 10 bucks. And the local church could be the hope of the world if the local church would see what God wants to do through us. But that ain't what I'm going to talk to y'all about today. You see, on my way to Africa, on our way back to Malawi, we had a layover in Amsterdam. Anybody ever been to Amsterdam? Anybody for you, y'all? And uh, so we had an 18-hour layover, and that's just awesome when, when you're flying from here to there. It, it, it takes forever to get to Africa, especially when you have to go through Amsterdam or Brussels or Paris or any of those places. And so we had this layover, and, and I said, Hey, let's just don't sit around the airport. Let's get out and let's go look at some stuff. And I know in Amsterdam, there's a lot of cool things here. There's uh, the Anne Frank's home. There is the, uh, the Reich Museum where the Rembrandts and the Van Goghs are, are, are on display. So I said, I want to go, go see Rembrandt's work. I want to go see Van Gogh because there's not many times in your life that you get to actually look at these masterpieces you can pull them up on Wikipedia, but that's not the same as standing there and looking at it. And so I said, I want, let's, let's go to the Reich Museum. So we, we went out of the airport, went through customs, got a, a taxi, and I told the driver, I said, uh, we want to go to the Reich Museum. We want to see the Rembrandts. And he didn't speak English very well, because it's Amsterdam, y'all. It ain't, it ain't Austin. And so he really, and then he pulled up to this place and said, this is the Wax Museum. I said, no, 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 we don't want to go to the Wax Museum. We want to go to the Reich Museum. So he drove around the building, and he came back and said, this is the Wax Museum. I said, no, 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 no. What we have here is a failure to communicate. We don't want to go to the Wax Museum. We go to the Reich Museum. Finally, the third time he drove around, he parked the park and said, this is the Wax Museum. I realized it wasn't his fault. It was my fault. That it was the Reich Museum. He just couldn't say it. Ah. Oh. It was my own arrogance that kept me from hearing what he was saying. Have y'all ever been there? Uh-huh, okay. And so we went in, and we looked at, uh, we, it was an amazing adventure. We spent about four hours there, and it wasn't long enough. Uh, we went to the Louvre as well in Paris on another trip, and we spent four hours there, and you gotta spend four days in the Louvre. Just unbelievable. And we were in, in, the, in the Reich Museum, 
And we're looking at, uh, I was looking at the night watchman, the beautiful painting. It's huge that Rembrandt painted. And it looked like it was a photograph. How in the world did Rembrandt paint with such unbelievable skill and clarity? And then, of course, I went and looked at the, the Van Goghs. One of my favorite Van Gogh paintings is, uh, is Starry Night. Do you all know that, that work of art? And I, every time I walk out into Wimberley, I think of Van Gogh and the Starry Night. I love living here in the hill country as God paints it. And it looks like we might get a little taste of spring today. The blue bonnet's going to stick their heads up soon. And our, and our beautiful country even becomes more beautiful. Anyway, I went back through, and then I came across the picture of, of Rembrandt's the prodigal. Did you know he painted the prodigal? And I want to show you a picture of the prodigal. I think, it's, I think we have a slide of it. There it is. Can y'all see that? You look at that picture, and I stood there for at least 30 minutes analyzing the prodigal. Now, I analyzed it in a couple of ways. I analyzed it as a, as a lover of art, because I am a lover of art. And I looked at it, and I looked at the detail, and I looked at the, the fold of the clothing, the shadowing, the emotion, the faces, and, and I looked at there, and I even saw... I saw the repentant son on his knees with his head pressed into his father's chest, and I saw the loving father and his hands upon him. Of course, I love that Rembrandt put everything, everybody dressed in 15th century garb. Who am I to criticize Rembrandt, right? And I looked at that painting, and then I noticed that back in the shadow, you see that guy back in the shadow? That's the older brother. Back in the shadows, staring, and you look at his face, and you see that kind of that face of disgust, the face of disdain. I, maybe I'm reading more into it, and, uh, and I'm seeing the others, the, the servants, the, seeing the, the robe and seeing the barefoot kid and, and all of that, and I realized this. I'm living in that painting. Rembrandt's telling my story that I am the prodigal. I am the loving father. I am the arrogant son. I'm the passive bystanders. That this was not just a painting of art, but this was a painting of my story and your story and our story. And Rembrandt kept, captured with his brush the very emotion of the human spirit, the human life, and the human journey. And as I look at that painting today, I realize that my roles change as my life changes. But he's telling my story. And Jesus told this story to a crowd of folks to instruct them about his story, his story of redemption, his story of salvation, his story of restoration. And he retells this story to us today so that we might find our place in this and respond to him so that we can come home and we can be restored or we can receive those coming home and we can be restorers or we can deal with our own dadgum dysfunction that keeps the prodigals smelling like pigs living in a far country. What shall we do with Rembrandt? with Jesus today. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for what you want to say this morning.
You know, Father, I come back to this family that I love with just so many mixed emotions, just so much, so much hope for them, some discouragement from them, but just so much love for you and love for them that we could escape who we once were and become who you desire us to be. That we will dash the prodigal from our heart the older brother's judgment from our soul and be a loving church of loving fathers that literally will be the hope of the world. One church is not too small. One expression of faith, one body of believers is not too small to change the world. And Father Wimberley is a really good place to let that movement begin. So I pray that you speak through me this morning. And I pray that these words will not just fall on the ears of those who hear, but they will fall on my heart that I might be changed as well. I don't need to hear from me. These people don't need to hear from me. They need to hear from you. So I pray that you'll move with power. And I thank you for what you're going to do and what you're going to say. And I pray this all in your son's strong name. Amen. I invite you to take your Take the Weekend With You notes and let me remind you of the, of the materials we provide for you on, uh, online. The, uh, the, the group materials, the, the weekend readings. Uh, we are going to be teaching, I think it starts May, March the 10th. March the 10th. We're going to be teaching through the book of John up until Easter. We're going to look at the seven signs of miracles of John up until the greatest miracle, the miracle of the resurrection on Easter Sunday. I would invite you to begin that by reading through the book of John. Now, we made that easy for you because we bought the copies of John that have a journaling page in it as well. So for cost recovery, five bucks, you can pick that up at the Resource Center, get your own book of John and join me in that. There's two other things I want to tell you and I want to be very serious. Wednesday begins uh, for our Catholic brothers and sisters and other people who observe the liturgical calendar, a season of Lent. And that's 40 days of focus on Jesus until Easter. Now, historically, Baptist churches do not participate in Lent. Do you guys know that? The only kind of Lent we have is in our pockets or our belly buttons. You knew that was coming, didn't you? Yeah. But uh, what I want to encourage you is that we're not going to participate in, quote, unquote, the liturgical season of Lent. But I want to invite you to take 40 days to focus on Jesus. Now, I've done this over the course of time, over the many years, not in a liturgical way, but in, a, in an excuse for a season of renewal. So I'm going to invite you to do that. Now, you could give up something. You could not give up something. Fasting is not, not withholding, is focusing upon. And so Tara and I have been talking about this, and I told her I was going to do this, and I said I'm going to go public with it. Uh, a few years ago, this is what she said to me. For Lent, you need to give up being grumpy. And so I preached through the book of Philippians for 40 days, uh, the book of joy. Uh, this year, what I'm going to focus on is living in the presence of God. That every waking moment, every breath I take, every move I make, every word I say, I want to live intentionally in the presence of God. And I think by Easter, you might have a new pastor. I mean, not you know, like the same guy, just better. What, what do y'all think about that? You might have a new one. He may kill me. He says, okay, come to my presence. But I, I want to do that. I want to invite you to, to join me with that. Now, you don't have to come tell me. 
Uh, you, you could, I'm, I am going to give up some things. I don't know what they are, and they're, frankly, they're none of your business because that's between me and Jesus, but I invite you into it. The second thing is this is very serious. Um, our beloved Dan Stevens has been diagnosed with, a, with a, an audio tumor behind his left ear, and we love Dan, don't we? We do. We love Dan. Now, Dan does not want any attention given to Dan, which that's unusual for a music guy, Dan. I don't know how God made you like that, but most of us musicians are, here I am, and, and Dan, you're just not that way, and we thank God for you. Dan's going to be out for a little while, and we're going to figure out what all that's going to happen, but, uh, and we're not going to do this today because he wouldn't let me do it, but he's going to let me do it because I am his boss. But we're going to pray. We're going to have a time of healing prayer for Dan in the very near future. Uh, we're going to anoint him with oil. We're going to pray over him. We're going to ask the Lord to heal him. And I know you're going to join me in praying for Dan that God would restore him. The doctors say that he will lose hearing in his left ear. Now, that's just what the doctors say, right? And, and uh, Dale Faulkner, they call it practicing medicine for a reason, don't they? Because you ain't never going to get it just right. And uh, so we're praying that Dan will be restored. And even if he does lose hearing in his left ear, we know that God will not take the musician out of Dan, okay? So y'all pray for Dan and y'all encourage Dan. So let's just tell Dan we love you, okay? On one, two, three. We love you, Dan. All right, so that's good. So thank you, Dan. You, knew, you didn't know I was gonna do that. So I'm gonna do it again next service to just let you know, warn you. I want you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Luke. We've been in Luke for a while now, and we're going to be in Luke chapter 15, verses 11 through 32. One of the things I regret about teaching through Luke is that I just didn't take enough time. 18 talks, eight, nine sermons, and nine small group experiences through the book of Luke is really not enough. So we, we might circle back to Luke and kind of cover the gaps at some other time. But we got John to move on to. And I want to read this story for you. Jesus told this story. Now, you notice that many times when I talk about biblical historicity, I will say in this account. I do not say in the story. Because the Bible is not a collection of stories. It's a collection of historically evidence. Historical evidence. But this, my friends, is a story. And Jesus was teaching. He was teaching an illustration, and it's racked with, full of, chalk full of, great insight that only Jesus could give. Let me read for us. He also said, a man had two sons. The younger of them said to the father, give me the share of my estate I, that I, I have coming to me. So he, the father, distributed the assets to, to them, to them, to them, to him and his brother. I don't know if you noticed that or not, but he distributed to them. And not many days later, the youngest son gathered together all that he had and traveled to a distant land where he squandered his entire state in foolish living, riotous living, as it said is in the King James. After he had spent, many, had spent everything, a severe famine struck that country, and he had nothing. And he went to work for one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. Hmm. He longed to eat his fill from the, the carbopods the pigs were eating, but no one would give him anything. Now you read this and you realize Jesus was laying upon insult upon insult. 
Depravity upon depravity. A distant land, a Jewish boy living in distant land is reprehensible. A Jewish man, boy working for, as a pig farmer is it, just indefensible. And a Jewish boy longing to eat pig food is crazy. It's not kosher. It's not right. This kid has fallen to the pit of depravity. And I love 17. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hands, hired hands, have more than enough food? And here I am dying of hunger. I'll get up and go to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your friend, your hired hands. So he got up and he went to, the, to his father. And while the son was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran. He ran. Jewish men didn't run. I'm kind of like a Jewish man. I don't run. The other day we were crossing the street in Bernie. Terry has to go to this place to buy soap at Bernie. They sell soap at H-E-B here. But she has to go to Bernie to buy soap. And so we go to Bernie, and then we have to cross the road in Bernie. Y'all see the, the video game Frogger? That was me, except for it was Toter. That was me. I was toting across. And I ran across the road. Terry goes, oh, you can run. I said, not on purpose. And he ran, and he threw his arms around his neck, and he kissed him. And the son said, the father, I've sinned against heaven in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be calling your son. But the father told his slaves, he stopped him, quick, bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. And then bring the fatty calf and slaughter it, and let's celebrate with a feast. Because the son of mine was dead, and he is alive. He was lost, and is found. So they began to celebrate. And oftentimes you end there, but we're not, because there's more. Now his older son, who was in the field, and he came near the house. He heard music and dancing, so he summoned one of the servants, and he asked him uh, what these things meant. Your brother's here, he told him, and your father has slaughtered the fatted calf because he, is, he has him back safe and sound. And then he became angry and didn't want to go in. So his father came out and pleaded with him, but he replied to his father, look, I've been here slaving many years for you. Whoa, 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 whoa. He gave them. He split everything with them. Everything the father had was no longer his. It was his son. I've been slaving away. Liar, liar, pants on fire. Huh. I've never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, you have de you de and devoured your assets with prostitutes. Now, how did he jump from riotous living to prostitutes? Because grumblers always want to make things worse than they really are. Oh, that'll preach. <laughs> Grumblers always want to make things worse than they really are because they want to build their case. You slaughtered the fatty calf for him. Son, he said to him, you're always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and he's, and he's found. And then one translation says, come join the party. 
Come join the party. It's not in this translation. I don't, didn't do the research whether it was in the original or not. I should have, and I apologize for that. But I realize there's some things here that I want to take you on a journey with. First of all, I want you to look at your heart. Do you have a heart of a prodigal? I do. The great song, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, Lord, take it, seal it, seal it for thy courts above. I relate to that. The author of that song drifted into what's called universalism and walked away from God and was later convicted by his own lyrics and returned to biblical orthodoxy. Hmm. You see, the heart of the prodigal has a few things in it. Maybe, let me look at your heart. Maybe you could look at your own heart, which would probably be better than me looking at it because I'll look at it with judgmentalism. You'll look at maybe with compassion and repentance. It's the heart of rebellion. You know what the heart of rebellion is? I want what I want when I want it. That's what I want. I want what I want when I want it. And it's the heart of rebellion. And you could tell a rebellious spirit by your reaction when you don't get your way. Or something is not in your preference. Hmm. And the heart of rebellion is a heart that's far away from God. You see, sin, at the root of sin, is rebellion. Satan said to the woman in the garden, eat this and you will be a god. In other words, eat this and you can do what you want when you want. And everything's going to be just like you want it because you're God. And if you don't get what you want, you just aggravate the devil out of everybody till you get what you want. Sounds like my little Lily who's 18 months old. Sounds like my little Ivy who's three and a half months, years old, almost four, that I'm going to get what I want. And it's the heart of rebellion. But listen to this. this. I found this to be interesting as I looked at this. That rebellion is the mother sin or attitude that leads to arrogance. You see, when I'm rebellious, I think I'm right. And I think I'm better. And I think I know more. Now, I'm just talking about me. I got a PhD in arrogance, y'all. Somebody said to me the other day, Pastor, what I just love about you is you're so humble. You don't know me. You do not. But I don't want my arrogance to be arrogance about Scott. I want my confidence to boast. Let him boast. Boast in the Lord. But rebellion leads to arrogance because when you're rebellious, you think you should get your way and you become arrogant. You become puffed up and prideful. When I moved to Canada, one of the things I discovered about Canadians is that they hate, hate, hate loud, boastful Americans. And they got one for a pastor. They call it the tall poppy syndrome. In other words, if the poppy grows up higher than the rest of the poppies like to whack it off. And what they do is they're passive aggressive. And then in their passive aggressiveness, they're arrogant. They're arrogant. And church, I want to tell you something. Arrogance 
will kill you. You look at Acts chapter 5 and Ananias and Sapphira. When they went before the church and they said, we sold this piece of property and we gave it all. And Peter said, you didn't give it all. You held some back. And that's no big deal if you held it back or not because it's your money. But don't come in here saying you gave it all because you're arrogant, you're boastful, you're prideful. And pride made the devil the devil. And behold the feet of the one who carried you out. And, and God killed both of them. They were both believers. I was at a coaching huddle this past weekend. We had five churches in doing a coaching huddle. Awesome on Thursday. Gosh, last week was crazy busy, y'all. I mean, I went to Denver. <laughs> this is funny. The pastor calls me and said, hey, Pastor Scott, why don't you come up and preach? My wife and I are going to take a little study break, and, and we want you to come. And you and Tara, we'll, we'll take you up the mountains. We'll have a great time. And, and you just preach a couple of times on the weekend. It'll be a vacation for you. I said, Okay. They work me like a rented mule, y'all. <laughs> Friday, all day consulting. Saturday, meeting with business management teams and consulting. And Sunday, preaching three times. Twice on Sunday morning, one on Sunday night. Y'all, I don't think Jesus goes to church on Sunday night anymore. He's just like, oh. It was 39 people and it was snowing and 18 degrees. You think I wanted to be out there? No. This is what Tara said. She was huddled up in the bed undercover said, just bring some supper back when you come. I'm not going <laughs> And I respected her for that. <laughs> Where was I going with that? And just being, uh, being arrogant and entitled and wanting what I wanted when I wanted and wanting comfort and convenience. And God wants to, he wants to use me. And this is what I thought about. I was sitting on the plane Monday, flying back, Hit, hit the ground running when I came back because I did a mistake. I got off the plane. I came to the office. And, you know, everybody's, oh, blah, 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 little cats. Meow, 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 meow. Where you been? Meow, 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 meow. And I realized 19 people came to Jesus that past weekend. And that eternity was changed. And it's not about me. And folks, if you want to live the, the life that honors God, it ain't about you. It's not. It's about him. It's about Jesus. It's about what he wants to do in and for and through you. The part of the prodigal's entitled heart. Give me what's mine. And I love the fact that Jesus said, and he divided it between them. Older son, here's yours. Younger son, here's yours. They both responded with what they had in the same way, just in different directions. Huh. Thomas Huxley said this, a man's worst difficulties begin when he is able to do just as he likes. The heart of the prodigal values things over people. Things over people. I've been a pastor for 38 years, and I've dealt with this in every church I've ever pastored. There are people who are more concerned about the budget than they are people coming to Christ. They're more concerned about cash reserves than they are people coming to Christ. Jesus comes back, and they want to have cash in the bank. Why? Jesus have to order pizza when he comes back? He needs some cash? What's up with that? 
Does Jesus need some money for an Uber ride? We give money for ministry, right? Right? A church is effective as is not counted on its reserves. A church effectiveness is counted on living all for Jesus. Does that mean that we're foolish? No. Does that mean we're good stewards? Yes. But I, what I've noticed in the churches I pastored, I hit the thing so hard my iPad acted up. Undo. Okay. What I've discovered is that people say this, well, we just need to be good stewards of the resources we've gotten. What they're saying, we just need to be stingy. Dr. Cheatham, can I get an amen? <laughs> to live all for Jesus, and it's that spirit of entitlement. And when, when you have a rebellious heart, a prodigal heart, you value things over people. And people matter to God, don't they? Don't they? But let me show you the heart of repentance and the process of repentance. How does a prodigal's heart become a heart after God? Here's a process. Here's the process, and you'll see this happen with the prodigal. The first thing that happened to him is a realization of being not where you belong or where you're supposed to be and literally come into your senses. Now, usually, we don't turn when we see the light. We turn when we feel the heat. Ain't that right? When it gets so bad that the, the cost of change is less than the cost of staying the same. And we begin to change. There's a Greek word, metanomai, which means to change your mind. It's literally where we get the word repentance for, from. Repentance is not listing out the things that you have done. And so many people say, you need to repent of your sins. You need to list them all. Do you not think God already knows? Like confessing to God is like confessing to your wife. She already knows. At least Tara does anyway. But what I have to do, what we have to do, is we have to metanomai. We have to change our minds. How do you change your mind? You cannot change your mind without the renewing of your mind, and the renewing of your mind comes as an act of God. When the Holy Spirit fills your life, he produces this kind of fruit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. But I have to have a changed mind by the renewing of the mind by an indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Now listen to me carefully, folks. When I received Jesus at seven, I got all of the Holy Spirit I'm ever going to get. But when I got Jesus at seven, the Holy Spirit did not get all of me he wanted. I have to daily, daily be conformed to the image of Christ. Some of y'all may thinking, be thinking, well, our pastor is going to spend 40 days living in the presence of God. He's our pastor. Shouldn't he be living in the presence of God all the time? Blah, 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 blah. Well, yeah, I should. But guess what? So should you. <laughs> Live with the same standard. Do y'all think Jesus loves me more than he loves you? Well, no, he doesn't. <laughs> Do you think I'm more spiritual and more holy than you? No. So together we metanomai change our minds by the renewing our mind through the power of the Holy Spirit. 
You can only change your mind. If you only change your mind, I want you to write this down. We'll say it right. If you only change your mind, you will never change your life. Because I could change my mind but not change my behavior, I have not changed. So look at these great I wills out of this passage. I will arise. I changed my mind. I came to my senses. So I will get up. It's the start that stops most people. To knowing what to do does not produce the desire to do it. The desire to do it usually takes hiking up your britches and say, let's go. That was horrible. I'll never do that again. At least that you will see. Okay. It's to change your mind. And then get up and move. Everyone has great intentions to start their diet tomorrow. I will. I will go. I will arise and I will go. I will make the intentional steps to move forward with God. And then I will say. And that's the confession with our mouth. And so the boy went through this process of I will arise, I will go, and I will say. And then he took the long walk of shame back into the arms of a loving father. Jesus told this story for this reason. He wanted you to see that you have a loving father, not a judgmental Pharisee waiting for you. His crowd that day consisted of Pharisees and and scribes and and, uh, professionals in the law of Judaism. Sinners and publicans and prostitutes and tax collectors and all manner of people who were marginalized by their society. Ordinary folks that were just looking on. And, and he said these things to point out the heart of a father. And this is the heart of the father God. He understood the free will of the son. He understood the free will of the sons. That God is omnipotent and he knows everything, but he's also so loving he gave you free will. He will allow you to mess up your life. I was, um, we had met at first Thursday night and I was teaching on Moses and talking about Moses and I gave them more stuff about Moses than they probably ever wanted to hear. Was, guys, if you're missing men at first, you're missing a lot of fun. And we were talking about Moses. And I said, did you know that God was gonna kill Moses? And y'all go, what? Yeah. About chapter 4, chapter 5 of Exodus, Moses is getting up, going back to Egypt, and the Bible says the Lord went out to kill Moses. And his wife, Sapphira, saved Moses by, by uh, circumcising their firstborn son and, and saying this is a bridegroom of blood. What she did was she gave the foreshadowing of the blood covenant of Jesus Christ in that stepping in for Moses. She said, only the blood will save you. And only the blood will save you. And God changed his mind about Moses. It could have been you know, Billy Bob and the Hebrew children instead of Moses. Huh. There's a whole lot more that's coming to my mind, but I'm going to move on because we ain't got time for that. But right after Easter, I'm going to teach through Moses, talking about having a heart of a rescuer, how God creates, takes a mess and makes a message because Moses, well, that gummy started off as a basket case, y'all. Oh, I know. 
So God allowed him to choose. As a father of children, grown children, I realize that they have the absolute free will and the ability to choose for themselves. I could do everything I could be and do to be the best godly father that I could be for my children, but they have the free will and they have the ability to choose. And I would guarantee every parent in this room will not say, well, my kids have done everything just like I want them to do. No, they haven't. And if you think that, you've got, you know, dementia has slipped in, I'm telling you. Because they have it. We have free will. But he looks for his children with a broken heart. And he looks. Every day that dad would step out. He would look. Is today the day that boy's coming home? I know what it feels like. My phone will ring and his name will come up and I'll say, is today the day? Has there been something befall him that he cannot endure or is today the day? Is today the day? Every time I see that name of my daughter come up, is there something wrong? Do y'all do that? Am I the only crazy one? I'm usually thinking, is there something wrong and do they need money? That's the two things I think. <laughs> and God has placed in my heart, in your heart, this parent thing that loves your children, even though you're disappointed, even though you're disillusioned, even though you wish they would do things differently. He's put this in your heart because that's in his heart. And God's not so hard and so unloving that he doesn't look longingly and forgive completely and restore with grandiosity. That is God. And he longs for his children to come home. And then Jesus said the unbelievable. He ran without shame and accepted without restraint. In reality, this boy should have been stoned. And all the Pharisees listening to that story, they were all thinking, should have killed him. Why? Because in Deuteronomy 21, it says this. If a man has a stubborn and rebellious son who does not obey his father or mother or doesn't listen to them, even after they've disciplined him, his father and mother must take hold of him and bring him to the elders of the city, to the gate of his hometown. And they will say to the elders of his city, this son of ours is stubborn and rebellious. He doesn't obey us. He's a glutton and a drunkard. Then all of the men of the city will stone him to death. You must purge this evil from you, and all of Israel will hear and be afraid. What? Did Jesus just go against the law? The law, the law shows you how much you need a Savior. The law illustrates your need. And the loving father says, you will not kill this boy. I will redeem this boy. I should have been stoned. But I've been saved. Instead of picking up my rocks, I should be pointing out my Savior. No, Surrey, I do not need you. Be quiet. 
I think Siri needs saving. Yeah. Did you accidentally summon me? Isn't that awesome? He displayed the compassion of the boy, responded, restored, and then rejoiced. Psalm 103, 10 through 14 says this, he's not dealt with us as our sins deserved or repaid us according to our offense. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his faithful love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far he's removed our transgressions for us. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he knows what we're made of, he remem- remembering that we are dust. I wrote this, and I hope it makes your, your brain hurt. We are not saved by the love of God. We're saved by the grace of God. God loves everyone, but not everyone is saved. Responding to the price of grace brings the salvation of God. Get up and go home. Get up and go home. Respond to his grace. But then there's the heart of the older brother. He was rebellious, self-righteous. I've done everything you've told me to do. I'm the perfect one. I am self-righteous. There's been a Baptist preacher in my family in successive generations since 1700s. I'm the righteous one. I have a brother who's a preacher. I'm a preacher. We are the righteous ones. Baloney. Self-righteousness. Arrogant. You see, the older brother desired to control. And one of the great signs of arrogance is the desire to control. I'm going to control. I'm going to control everything is around me. I want to say this to you, church, and I say it to pastors all the time. I don't think I've ever said it to you. You could do one or two things. You could control or you can grow. You can't do both. You can control or you can, do, or you can grow. You can't do both. And some of y'all say to me, well, pastor, you're just out of control. That's right. But God is never out of control. And I, would not, I, do, I do not want to be in control. Do y'all want me to be in control? Who do you want to be in control? Jesus. So let him. Let him. But you don't want something else? God has asked me to be your pastor. So you know what that means? I'm going to aggravate y'all. I will love you. I will encourage you. I will walk with you. Entitled. He was entitled. Elitism and entitlement is, are two of the most, or the two of the worst demons in all of hell. When you're entitled and you're elite, you want what you want when you want it. You're entitled. You feel like you deserve it. And when you're, you're feel like you're better than folks, which is arrogance and rebellion, kind of all gathered into one, it's two of the worst demons in hell. And the older brother valued things over people. The younger brother, the rebellious one, said, give me everything that I'm that I, coming to me. And the older brother said, I have, I have worked like a slave for all this stuff. 
And the older brother should have said, man, I'm so glad I've been with daddy all these years. And let's go party over because this boneheaded brother of mine's finally got his act together. Let's go in here and eat some steak and dance. Or we can sit out on the porch with our lip poking out being a jerk. And the difference between the older brother and the younger brother is that the older brother, the younger brother got up and he went. The older brother never repented. The rebellious boy was saved and the older brother was damned. And the father responded to both these boys in exactly the same way. Exactly the same way. I stood that afternoon looking at the Rembrandt, the prodigal. It's me. I'm the rebellious boy. I'm, I'm the loving father. I'm the judgmental older brother standing in the shadows. And I need Jesus. So I will. I will arise and go to my father and I will say, Jesus, I'm yours. Jesus, I'm yours. And let the party start.